0: 16 performers in a multi-generational and multilingual work. What did it take to bring the landmark counting and cracking to the stage? I'm Dino Dimitriadis and welcome to the final episode of Staging the Nation. Welcome to Staging the Nation. We'd like to acknowledge the Darug people where we record this podcast today, and we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. As we stand in this complicated present, we shine a light on some of the Australian writers that are grappling with the big questions of who we are as a nation and the complexity of presenting marginalised and underrepresented experiences. Shakti is a Western Sydney storyteller with Sri Lankan heritage and Tamil ancestry. He's a writer, director and producer of film and theatre, as well as a composer and performer of original music. As a writer, Shakti's debut play is Counting and Cracking. Co-produced by Belvoir and Co-Curious, Counting and Cracking is a three-hour epic With 16 actors and three musicians hailing from six different countries. It had a sellout season at Sydney Festival in 2019, followed by the Adelaide Festival, with rave reviews and a profound impact on the Sri Lankan community. Shakti, I could keep going and talk about all the awards and all the recognition, but I'm not going to do that to you. (laughs) Uh, Thank you so much for being with us to discuss. a work that is nothing short of a landmark work. And you know, over the course of this series I've spoken to so many so many playwrights about so many different kinds of works. and it's quite fitting actually and, and quite thrilling to be to be finishing this series uh, with such an ambitious work. Look, there's lots I want to ask you about about how this all came to being. and one of the big themes that's come up in this series, is scale and and playwrights grappling with scale. But I'd love to start with a question that I've asked every single person sitting in that chair, which is deeply fascinating to me. And that is, (laughs) what was that moment or that seed where you went counting and cracking should be a play?
1: I was sitting in um, an uncle's house in Sri Lanka. Uncle in the sense of, the way my community uses uncle. Mm. <laughs> um, and I was there against my mother's wishes in Sri Lanka. And um, my family and who I still in Sri Lanka were happy to let me come back naive as I was about the homeland and spend time with them to learn more. And um, my uncle uh, pulled a, a, a shoebox off a shelf and um, told me it had my great-grandfather's letters in it. And my great-grandfather um, had written all these letters to his grandchildren, um, and we read them to each other. And I learnt that he was a um, someone who was, you know, born in, into a farming estate and in the north of Sri Lanka, um, and eventually became uh, the only Tamil in the first post-independence cabinet of Sri Lanka. And this kind of rise was based on his real passion for fostering a sense of equality mm. in Sri Lanka and, and and a hope for that. And By the end of his life, he died as civil war was breaking out in Sri Lanka and um, had become... Quite a realist, and had moved into a position where he felt that uh, Sri Lankan Tamils needed to protect themselves at all costs because they couldn't expect um, support or, or 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 protection from the government. <clears throat> and this um, course of my great grandfather's life um, was of, was of course incredible to me in the sense that. I didn't know he was mm-hmm. in our family. <laughs> um, but also that in my own family, there was something which seemed to mirror the, um, the history of the country. And I figured, like, I just remember in that moment going that my family's history and story could, could be told simultaneously with my country's story. Mm. And one of the lines of the letters was, um, uh, democracy is a counting of heads within certain limits and a cracking of heads beyond those limits from my great-grandfather.
0: So that's when I knew. That's when you knew. Did uh, that's a that's a beautiful story. Did you know straight away that this would be a multi generational story? I think so. Depends what depends when straight away is. Yeah,
2: <laughs>
1: um, but pretty early on. Yeah. Pretty early on. I think um, one of the things that always motivated me, at least from the beginning of drafting, like writing words, mm. which was, I think for. Lots of writers quite late in the process compared to other writers. I mean, in the sense that I did a lot of research first, but certainly throughout the drafting process, I always had this thing in my head of um, that there'd be a, that that this family would embrace at the end of the play, and um, to properly understand what this embrace of a unified family meant, would wouldn't have to involve understanding, you know. Sixty or seventy years before that embrace, so I always knew that, and that mm.
0: meant it was that that I knew, mm. which meant it had to be multi-generational. Yeah, absolutely. There'd be some people listening to this who might not know the the canvas of the work. Can you talk a little bit about you know, because it's quite far-reaching in its time frame. Yeah, and talk a little bit about how far that time frame extends. Yeah,
1: sure. So it begins in um, 2004 in Western Sydney. And we meet a mother and a son who bicker (laughs) Uh, and express their love that way. And they're probably going to settle into Australia uh, happily, mostly apart in their own worlds. Um, The mum is setting up kind of her life as a single mum without her only child who's moved out of home and um, the son you know, she has a kind of flirtation with a Turkish air conditioner installer (laughs) and the son meets this girl at a party. She's Yolungu. And um, their kind of understanding of the world is uncannily connected. And um, you feel they're going to go their separate ways, mum and son. But then at the end of Act 1, they learn that um, the husband or father they thought was dead is actually alive. And to grapple with that means... um, uncovering secrets that the mother has held on to um, since she was since 21 years ago and since she left Sri Lanka and in order to kind of find out those family secrets we go back to mm-hmm. Sri Lanka in the 1950s and then the 70s and then the early 80s um, and we uncover this epic story which um, not only gets at the heart of what happened to this family but also um, how it is that Sri Lanka was unable to
0: Resist a descent into violence. Yeah, it's extraordinary. You know, the the mapping of the civil war through the work, and and what you said very early on about you know through the specific lens of a family, you can mm. actually strike at so much mm. in the travel of a country. Yeah, exactly. Um, which is so yeah. wonderful. So you you know you sort of you had this impulse. You you know I, you, you know plays are not singular conceived in singular moments. They're kind of a, you know an accumulation of moments, but. You know, one of the things we've talked about in this series is is a play of any scale, moving from the process of conceiving it into bringing it to life is, is, is always a complex one and follows many paths. What did you know early on about the scale of this work? I think in order
1: to authentically portray the Sri Lankan scenes, I knew there needed to be a scale of bodies mm. and... I started this work took ten years yeah. from when I started researching it to when it got up on stage, and obviously not full time, but it took that mm. long in the to be in the world, and um, and so I say that to say, I really was blissfully unaware of all the the, the things that were problematic about such yeah. a, such a decision, <laughs> <laughs> um, and and was just focused on what the story needed, um, but the <clears throat> I say that because. So in the Sri Lankan scenes, there's a kind of uh, there's a love story mm. right between a forbidden love story between between two Tamil Sri Lankans of of two castes that aren't supposed to get together. And um, there is a something I always loved about the way people talked about my great grandfather was that he would hold court in the front porch of our house and um, and everyone was invited to contribute to the political discussion of the day, Mm. whether it was literally other people in parliament who were hanging out there and arguing with him or the fruit seller or his children. And so, um, and and the reason I mentioned the love story is to say that you can't tell a Sri Lankan love story through that time and for it to be a two-hander because you weren't allowed to be alone with the person you were in love with, (laughs) nor were you allowed to declare that you were in love with them. And so courtship was this, um, uh, kind of covert dance through, throughout, through society, mm-hmm. in which like at, at temples or weddings, you would find ways to be close to this person, <laughs> you know. Um, and so th- these manifestations of Sri Lankan life, whether it be the front porch of a house or the way that our preparations for a wedding actually becomes the development of a love story uh, can't be told properly and without a certain amount of bodies. Mm. And so I knew that 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 had to have scale. Um, and then I also knew that I wanted to show the loss of that um, in Australia. You know, and it's one of those things you write that has nothing to do with dialogue. It's yeah. just like the form of the work. I needed to, I wanted it to be there, that there was this um, life of a nation that gathered and, Confronted itself when we talked about Sri Lanka, Mm. and then there was this segregated behind fences life that we live in Australia, and and to to show that difference, so um, so we needed scale on one end to show the contrast, to not have it on the other end, Um, and and that is the play. Funnily enough, that didn't change. The play is a series of scenes which go from two or three handers to um, fourteen handers. Yeah, (laughs) you know, kind of that's that's how it moves between those two. Um, and then working with Belvoir, I was trying to do everything I could to lower the costs Yeah, (laughs) and going, fuck, we can double, you know, this many actors, you know, and like, and, um, and we can save money here and there. And like, one of the most amazing things I learned working with Eamon was how to not, uh, compromise on what a work should be, you know, and, and kind of learning from him that to, Chop and cut and take the edges of things consistently um, ultimately harms the work, mm. you know. And um, you, we all go through this in our careers, but you, you you run the danger of, and I've done it so many times. We all we can't avoid it, but you run the danger of um, uh, kind of presenting a work where everyone sees the promise in it, but yes. can, can tell that it wasn't realised.
0: Yeah. Because you're writing to programming yeah. rather than writing the work. Yeah,
1: writing the work. And um, you know, partly because of his artistic courage, partly because of, of of the privilege of living a life inside a main stage company in terms of a lot of his career. Amen doesn't do that. And um, and and so it, it grew with Belvoir. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it, then it became, and then the final thing was in terms of scale was going well. We can't screw this up. You know, like there hasn't really been a work of this scale um, about migrant Australia in a long time, if ever. Like there might have been things in the 80s. And it's, and we, I don't want it to not work and mm. for people to use that as an excuse and go, that's why we shouldn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so it's, then I was like, and then the work was um, uh, culturally for our community trying to be a place which presented many different truths about Sri Lanka's history and tried to say "Mm, the arts is a place where you always can empathise with every character on stage and understand why they're doing what they're doing, even if you don't agree with it. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you pull that off, then you present a group of people with an opportunity to say we do have a shared future together despite a shared history of violence. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, there was, I guess all of those things were like elements which just kept pushing the scale up mm. and because that was what the work needed, Yeah. um,
0: which obviously led to several other roadblocks.
2: Yeah, of course.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, one thing we'll talk a bit about is, is, is what you did spatially, which was, um. You know, ultimately take the work out of a theatre, yeah, or a traditional, yeah. black box theatre, yeah, and place it in the town hall, yeah. Uh, which, you know, which in one respect, in terms of what you're saying about community and 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 the scenes that oscillate between the the smaller isolated scenes in Australia and the and the larger scenes when we kind of move back in time, um, you can see and and also having experienced it how how that resonated, but what did that also mean in terms of bringing community? to the work, not through the barrier of entering the traditional theatre door. When we boiled down the dramaturgy, which took a really long
1: time, and Eamon and I kind of spent a few days really circling what the essential dramaturgic question of canning cracking was. And we we, we arrived at can we live together or not? And um, it was clear to us that the... Um, and i was this was important for me from the very beginning of writing the play was was that the audience are involved in that question as much as the characters of the of the play so the set design had to carry that through
0: yeah it had to be
1: a place where the audience felt like the play was offering up the question of can we live together or not and that they weren't separate from that question they were going to be complicit in it and involved in it so myself and Eamon and Dale were carrying that around in our heads and Dale's the costume and set designer yeah. for Cannon and Cracking, Dale Ferguson. And then we were in Sri Lanka doing some casting and also Dale was with us um, doing research for the set And we and we went to the wrong place for a meeting. <laughs> and we were there for hours because... We were like, where is this guy we're meeting? (laughs) And it took us a while to figure out it was because we're in the wrong place. And we were in a university and um, the university had all of these, um, where we were meeting, these kind of these spaces, which were both inside and outside and um, had the grandness of uh, um, a gathering space, Mm. but also were porous, you know, and then um, many of the places we do auditions, we do auditions in Sri Lanka were these kind of rackety old buildings that were kind of like old Asian versions of town halls. And so it, it dawned on us that these semi falling apart inside outside gathering spaces was a perfect way to distill, you know, um, let's gather to discuss whether we can live together or not. Um, and then when the option of the town hall came up with Wesley Enoch yeah. Sydney Festival, that was perfect for a few reasons. One, because I just love the idea of taking one of the most colonial idea- buildings, buildings in Sydney yeah. <laughs> yeah. and um, maintaining what it had done in Sydney. Like people go there for a Stedfords and to get citizenship and then just like decolonializing the fuck yeah. out of it. <laughs> um, but also for exactly what you said, like Town Hall is like on, on almost every train line you know, and um, people go into town hall no matter where they're from in Sydney. Like, we, t- I've worked a lot in Western Sydney. We talk about Western Sydney a lot, but it's like, it's actually a, a um, beguiling term because Western Sydney should be called Sydney. Yeah. And um, the city should be called the Far East. Like, Western Sydney is all 90% of Sydney. Yes. Like, it's like so... <laughs> So this idea that you can situate something in Western Sydney is very difficult because it's huge and most of Sydney. So um, Town Hall was kind of perfect because it was like it didn't matter if you were coming from um, like uh, Northmead or Penrith or Campbelltown, like like all the lines end there, you know. Um, so it was kind of like not perfect for anyone, but mm. not impossible for anyone. <laughs> um, and it was a place that people were used to going to, you know whether it be a Stedford's or citizenship. So, um, yeah, it really
2: mm.
0: landed for all those reasons. Yeah. I mean, it was so extraordinary to just walk in and be aware of the building in its sort of original use, but then, yeah. but then see its transformation and just yeah. sort of sit liminally between two spaces, really. Yeah, totally. Um, and it
1: was nice because you there's a little foyer mm. before you go into the main space. So you, yeah, you could step through what you just described where it's like you're in an opulent yeah, kind of highly colonial colonial foyer and then you walk yeah. into the surprise of being in a rickety Sri Lankan <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: yeah. 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 No, it was building. It, it was incredible. Kudos to Dale, wow. I mean, cuz that was kind of like from a design point of view the switch he had to make was like I'm not really building a set for the show. I'm 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 building a space to hold the audience and the story together.
0: Yeah, because the show itself was not without its own spatial complexities. <clears throat> yeah. So it's essentially <clears throat> Dale had to build a, a theater and then also build, you know, yeah. build the That's show, right. which yeah. was you know
1: I- I- extraordinary. Yeah, because he made the seating bank, so people it, who didn't see it that, that that was part of the show.
0: Yes, yeah. and it was all sort of integrated, and you felt part of p- felt part of this this whole experience. I want to jump back to what you said about, you know, the 10 years and the research and, 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 and getting here. So, you, you know, you have this impulse that there is a work here, that there's something interesting that can parallel a family with a country. What is that research process like? What did you do? The research came before that. So I think the research was kind of like <clears throat>
1: uh, much more prosaic really, which was just that my parents didn't talk about Sri Lanka growing up and kind of... Um, every migrant family chooses their own mix, mm. you know, like of assimilation and not assimilation. And they did a weird mix where I mean, my mom's a Bharatanatyam dancer and I, I grew up in, immersed in Tamil classical art forms and storytelling and, and very connected to the art forms of traditional Tamil culture, the West Sri Lankan Tamil, so we have that connection. But, but completely unknowing around the particulars of, of Sri Lanka's history, what brought our family to Australia and so um I just hit my late 20s and kind of went through that thing lots of migrants do where they're like I don't really know mm. myself unless I know that mm. you know it's all a bit of a charade isn't it <laughs> um and so that was what and we have this privilege when we're, we're artists we're like well. Fuck it, that could be a show then. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll work this out by making a show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and so, began research on, on it. And I, my history had been as a community artist. Uh, and Cannon Cracker was my first play that I you know, uh, wrote for my own voice. And, and my whole history before that was working with other communities to help them tell their stories. And so, I just turned to that first and I just interviewed or just chatted to um, or hung out with so many Sri Lankans here in Sydney and around the world over years. And um, the beautiful thing that happened was the um, that, that struck me when, when, and when I realised what I wanted the show to achieve in terms of the interfacing between what theatre is and history is or something, mm. like different to the whole telling a family story and country story, but this was about going, you know, what can theatre offer, I guess, in terms of our interaction with history. If you read about Sri Lanka in the news um, or in history books, like it's it's about there being an ethnic division between Tamils and Sinhalese and that leading to a war and that ethnic kind of division being rife within that country. And so you have that being a given. And then you talk to actual people mm. and, you know, that division is, dissipates very quickly. And it is an incredibly interwoven country, whether it be in businesses or marriages or families or friendship groups and there is so much crossover and hybridity and it became apparent to me that talking to people that what was common between everyone was I found that an interwoven country had been met with the politics of division hmm. put forward really by politicians who didn't really believe in it in terms of the division part but believed in it as, a, as its ability to, uh, to win elections and it's kind of brutal political force and that the politics of division created barriers between people that weren't there before. I thought that was a completely different way of understanding the history of Sri Lanka and simultaneously a way for for the people to gather around our homeland in a way that gave us a possibility for a shared Mm -hmm. future. So that's what the research phase was about, was about kind of understanding the country that way. And then through that, there was a kind of um, everything in Canyon Cracking is true in the sense that none of it's made up, but the thing is a work of fiction, Yeah, <laughs> you know. And so obviously old-fashioned writing style along with all of that, there were also just hundreds of um, both big and tiny stories yes. <laughs> that I wanted to meld or massage in to various mm. scenes, and which is where it gets its breath of life from, you know. There's a there's obviously a family in that play and we we journey through it over four generations. But there's also the family help has her own yeah, very complex history and arc. And there's the guy who frees the father from prison that we thought was dead. Um, he he has complex, you know, mm. he, he loves Moore Diran. <laughs> um, but also learns from him a kind of a complex way of looking at the country that makes him hurt the father. So there's that, you know, what I loved about that process that I didn't realize till afterwards is that it helps your writing be kind of almost overladen with specificity. Yeah. Like almost overburdened with it in a really good way. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like how you can um, just be dripping with, with tiny tails everywhere.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which which everyone can relate to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But you know, that hyper specificity <laughs> is actually the universality of the work, Exactly. You know? It's kind of yeah, it absolutely extreme. is. Yeah, you sort of kind of collected the kinds of people who would be on your great grandfather's porch and kind of going yeah. all oh, that's, these, you know. I wish I'd said that. That's yeah. beautiful. <laughs> that's a lovely way to put it. That's exactly right. No, that's exactly right. And and go in <laughs> these directions, you know. Yeah. Um what what was the process of 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 sort of or or, or how did you go with telling your immediate family about the work. Mm. It's not looked highly upon
1: being an artist in Sri Lankan Tamil (laughs) circles. I don't know, like how could I tell them really Mm. when they didn't really understand what theatre was yeah, or what the point would be (laughs) to relate that to what our community had gone through. And then, of course, the additional barrier of... My, my immediate family, not wanting to talk about it. And so there were all the barriers. But then what I did was then not try to convince anyone of anything, but let the play work or not work, by which I mean I had no freaking idea. Like I might send the play and it might, you know, I was terrified. It might be, mm. um. This, you know, getting a bad review is one thing. They hurt, of course, but but getting someone – saying you got this all wrong <laughs> you have no idea yeah. about what our family went through or what our country went through please stop would, would be infinitely worse so I was terrified but I sent it to my mum first the first draft and um, she didn't say anything but thereafter she started to around the time I finished the first draft was also around the time Eamon came to a showing and I sent it to him so it was also around the same time Belva started it's tendrils of getting involved, very first steps. And um, my mum, like, was willing to come to future developments. Mm. And, and she
0: originally didn't think it was a great idea to do this, right? No,
1: she told me that I was an idiot and it was a stupid idea. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Which is not an uncommon thing. Yeah. I to say that <laughs> anything. But, <laughs> um, but no, she was very, very against it. And I'll come to why in a moment. I'm sure you can guess. But the she still wasn't able to talk to me, but this wonderful thing happened scary as well which was in the public in a semi-public space in developments for the play with people from Belvoir there and people from uh, Curious Works and Co Curious there and actors there um, they would ask questions mm. you know uh, and they my mum couldn't not say anything to them <laughs> yeah <laughs> and so she would start opening up about Sri Lanka <laughs> yeah. um, which is incredible you know I couldn't Got this done at the dinner table, <clears throat> yeah, and <laughs> the, the safety of strangers. Yeah, yeah. Safety, exactly. And and obviously, I was working hard to make it a safe space. All that invisible work you do, but with that done, yeah, the safety of strangers. And it's just like little tidbits would come out that were just like I'd then have to think about for months. <laughs> like <laughs> like her saying, you know, if we'd stayed in Sri Lanka for a couple more weeks before we left, I don't think we ever would have left. Mm. you know, things like that. And so she started opening up and this thing happened where I started to see the play had a power and it was separate to me as a writer. It was kind of just going, no, 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 this play is doing things to people and we're kind of custodians of that power. Mm. And it affected the writing process after that because then it was like, well, we have a responsibility to be open to that effect and then let that change the play. And so all the stuff my mom started saying and, and things that Sri Lankan actors would say after reading the play and so on, um, started to make its way into the play. And the closing scenes of the play, there's a big monologue from the mother, rather, mm. which is kind of like um, stolen from um, my mother, <laughs> mm. um, w- w- where she got up at a fundraising event for County Cracking, <laughs> quite close to when it was on yeah, and said she wanted to speak at it and I was like, okay, and then said it's a lot of that monologue <laughs> and I was like, whoa, but it was because the the earlier version of the play was having an effect on people and opening them up in the way that then had to, we had a responsibility to keep mm. incorporating it into the play and it was wonderful because it moved the play. It was kind of like the play had all the ingredients. The early versions of the play... Had all the I'm really crystallizing this for the first time in my head now, saying it to you. Like it was kind of like the early version of the play had all the ingredients for a process of healing. And then because it started to help people heal, the final version of the play was able to include the tail end of that healing mm. process as part of what happens in the narrative. Mm. And so my mother's relationship with the, her homeland completely changed. Mm. And she became a consultant on the play and did a lot of the costumes with Dale, like all the traditional costumes. And she went back to um, the north of Sri Lanka for the first time in 35 years. And, um, you know, and then my uncle who used to ring me every week, asking me when I was going to get a real job, came to the opening night of Canyon Cracking and was, I swear to God, was like, because I was sitting behind him, was the first person to stand and applaud. Mm. And um, and he's never asked me to get a real job since then. Wow. <laughs> um, so I think, and then the other hilarious thing that happened, which was was it when it got nominated for lots of Helpmans, mm. the the main other group that got nominated for lots of Helpmans um, was the Harry Potter musical. And um, and then uh, I don't care about this. I'm not saying it because I care. But when it won a yeah. lot and Harry Potter didn't, there was this, some journalist wrote the headline that way, like, yeah. Cracking Beats Harry Potter. Yeah. And my extended family, <laughs> that was the first time they were like, Chuck D's, this is a serious thing yeah. Chuck doing. <laughs> like it's it's beating Harry Potter yeah. at something. And so, they, just, they were like this was it became real to them yeah <laughs> you know it became like a yeah, so yeah. it's been a, a long process of the mm. play mm. working its way through the family and community and yeah no I think it's a it's an ongoing journey, yeah, because now the next show, I don't have to convince them as much to come to it, but it needs to take the next step in what yeah. the storytelling do with the
0: community, but it's extraordinary. I mean, it's, it's also very moving to to see people come to it in their own way and 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 be at the point they are now. But it's it's also a lot for you to navigate as the artist traveling with the work and yeah. making it and working within a traditional artistic structure. Yeah, and then the community travel with the That's work. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and have yeah. and being able to have that rare process where you can actually allow, like you said, it to. Continuously reinform the work. Yeah, yeah, and I made that deal with
1: Belvoir. I said I made that deal with Eamon to say that that community process has to come first, mm. and that was a like a a non-negotiable, and um, uh, and it really helped pave the way for the appetite <laughs> for pulling off the scale of the work because what basically what, what Eamon said was like, okay, I get it. So we're going to have to make this work. Differently to how we ever made a work before, you know, and so everyone at Belvoir knew that that was the deal. Yeah, that we had to make this one differently, because there are things in *Canyon and Cracking* that aren't, you know, if I was to if we if I was to write the sharpest piece of theatre possible, I I I I'd take a bit of that script out, mm. you know, and um, but there are things that are in it because I think there's this other really cool thing happening in Canning and Cracking*, which is like the show opens with Tamil. And then it gets translated into English. And that's a kind of nice symbol of what's happening, which is that if you're not from the Sri Lankan community, you're kind of watching two shows at once. Mm. You're watching the show because the more specific you get, as you said, the more universal it is. Everyone has a family, whether they're connected to it or not. And um, this is a story of a family. So great. But you're also, if you're not from the Sri Lankan community, I think uh, present to a community witnessing a story of itself. And everyone who saw that show... Has always talked to me about not only the show, but how they witnessed Sri Lankans watching the show. Yeah, you know, and so that to me was more important than making the sharpest pay possible. Mm. And there's things, particularly in Act Two, which is all about using the theatre as a kind of place of truth telling and paving an open path towards justice and and healing, and and a safe place to meet trauma. That that is uh, all those things are kind of more prevalent mm. in the writing. Than the sharpest play possible, you know? Mm. Um, but I I like that. I don't mind if some reviewers are like, it's a bit long. If we get to create an experience in Australian theatre where, like I've, I'm sure you have too, like I've grew up watching all these white Hollywood stories mm. and found a way to relate to them. Like, so I like, why can't we put on our stories and have other audiences find a way to relate to them? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and that they get to know that, they're not the center of that story but they can still connect to it i think that's a more interesting task yeah then yeah
0: yeah and uh, you know and also it's it's length and it's scope um you know created space for what what you talked about earlier which is being able to have all these different story threads mm. and what's yes. interesting <clears throat> to me about that is it's kind of really tied for me to the politics of the work because you know, what, one of the things I've learned as a Greek migrant, and when my sort of family comes together, especially multi-generationally, is there is no truth. Mm, no, <laughs> there is many truths. Yeah, 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 and they're all informed by different lived experiences, and and also there's there's generational truths. Yeah, hundred percent. So, you know, what was what's great about all those stories and, and and sort of those threads, and 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 how you located the work, um, I mean, culturally, not not geographically too, is is. You know, there didn't seem to be a political agenda that the Mm. work was pushing. Mm. Mm. Was that something that you were conscious of? of? Oh,
1: no, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, um, this I guess the only political agenda the work has is one that is pushing forward certain values as deserving of prominence you know for example, that it is more important for people to be able to hold space together and disagree than it is for people to come together and decide what is correct or mm. right. And another one being that and I this is a way for me to return to what I said I would I didn't, <laughs> which is you know the reason my mother, And my immediate family didn't talk about Sri Lanka is because the way they dealt with the trauma of what happened there and leaving that country was to bury that pain. Mm. And that was how they dealt with the extraordinary act that millions of people have done, which is setting up a new life in a new home. And so there is another message, not message in the right word, there's another value in canning cracking saying, despite the pain it causes... If we can find a way to collectively, safely, peacefully meet that buried trauma and heal together, then it is worth it because it stops us from not passing what we know onto our future generations Mm. and nothing is more important than making sure that we don't stop ourselves from passing Mm. what we know onto future generations. So, you know, there are certain values like that that I think became paramount that are much more important than any particular political yeah. yeah, ideology. And I think, you know, it's kind of like it's interesting because Tamil people in Sri Lanka have been oppressed and have been the victims of violence purely because of their race at times in the country's history. And the way, there's a way to go about trying to address that, which is politically charged. And there's a way to go about that, which says, well, why did that happen? Why is it unacceptable? And do we all need to acknowledge that it happened in a clear-eyed way in order to have our best chance of it not happening again in the future? Mm. So it's, you know what I mean? It's those kinds of lines of questioning I hope we can arrive at rather than the more strident
0: ones that are normally
1: in a political sphere.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and that monologue you talk about at the end is, is sort of an, a, a catharsis inbuilt into the work. That's right. You know, separate yeah. to the one that we might be having watching it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. it's a... It, yeah, yeah, no, I completely agree. It's a significant one because it's, you know, and, and, and I've certainly experienced that, you know, family and parents can can close chapters. They, they think, you know, they're preserving you by not telling those mm, stories mm, in a way. Mm, they do. But actually what can actually come from opening those stories up. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 what is lost if we don't. Yeah. Yeah. So you're sitting in the town hall, you know, having not, not an easy process to get any work on stage, any new Australian work, let alone one of this scale. But you're you're sitting in the town hall for its its first season. And what was the most was there one moment that you that was the most profound moment for you at any point during the season? Oh that sort of overwhelmed you in that experience of watching the play?
1: I think, um, I mean, there were many, but the one that comes to mind now is um, Nipuni, who's one of the actors in the show. She's Singhalese Sri Lankan. And she talked about how her family were hesitant for her to be involved in the show. Mm. So they were like, oh, it's written by a Tamil writer. He's from the diaspora, you know, uh, he's not going to have our best interests at heart. I don't think he should do this. And um, you know, she read the script and she really wanted to be a part of it and um, during a QA and a in the season, she talked about how the version of history that's in that play is not what they're taught at school. And, and, the, and I guess the corresponding thought to that is that this theatre show had presented to audiences, in particular to the Sri Lankan community, uh, for lack of a better word, a more viable history, historical account of, of our post-colonial history. And for a diaspora community to be doing that is kind of monumental, you know, cause it's like, usually we meddle in our homelands affairs in ways that are not useful mm. <laughs> and we're distanced from it. And we, uh, don't understand what's going on there properly and we have greater economic power because we're in the West Mm. and this mixture of not knowing and greater power just stuffs the homeland up further. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, And for there to be this fundamentally useful thing that the diaspora was doing, which was saying that being distanced from Sri Lanka actually allowed us to create a space for healing that would have been too hard to make there mm. and that that out of all the fucked upness that meant that my people spread all over the world because of this war, that something good can come out of that separation in terms of what we can now contribute back um, was really moving. And the idea that that was an Australian act was really interesting. Mm. (laughs) It was kind of like so nice to have a crystallization of what it meant to be Australian that was still so closely connected to who we were as migrants, you know, and that after the shows, like Sri Lankans would always say to me what they thought about the show, but then ask me why anyone else was watching it or cared about it. And like, they were just stunned that anyone Mm. else came along to the show because it was so, so, so close to them. And it slowly dawned on us that we were like, that that show was a way for us to belong to Australia, right? Because it wasn't like we were making a show to put on in a Sri Lankan community group. It wasn't like we were making a film to put on satellite TV mm. to send back to Sri Lanka. It was like part of the Australian way of how Australia was saying it was telling stories. And so all of those ideas were kind of encapsulated when Nippity mm. said that, so that's what I was remembering.
0: Yeah, beautiful. You know, so we obviously talked about the long research percolation process, but, you know, works of this scale don't just arrive in, in Australian theatre. And there is a long process of development, funding, partnership, all of that. Can you talk a little bit about how how that happened? So Belvoir, you know, Belvoir saw an early development. Yeah, it was kind of like um, the beginning of it was... I wrote the, the first draft of a grant
1: that was specifically for young artists. Yeah. And I always say that because it's like those grants aren't around anymore.
0: Mm.
1: <laughs> and it's, A lot of grants
0: are not around. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, and it's like, well, that was, you know, there used to be grants that were like 15 grand uh, for artists under 26 that gave young people a chance to be bold mm. and ambitious, you know. So I think that's a great tragedy that that stuff isn't even available anymore. But that's how, it, you know, like I could apply to Australia Council and say this crazy thing I want to do, you know, and if you're yeah. up in the normal round, people are going to go, well, he doesn't have as much experience as XX and X. So mm. great idea, but no, no, thank you. And um, how is this going to get
0: on? Yeah, totally.
1: And so to be able to do that was amazing. You know, and I think Stephen Armstrong was the chair of the theatre board then and, you know, it was a different time. But um, the so that was what made it possible initially. And then what made it possible as we moved through the grappling of this ridiculously huge play in script form versus how does it actually happen mm. was utilising the, the, the potential of both the small to medium sector as well as the main stage. And so through Co-Curious, the whole point of Curious Works and Co-Curious was being very at home with a community-driven process of making work. Mm. And I was on salary there and um, the, you know, the the casting process for that show was mainly on WhatsApp. It was mainly me WhatsApping people across (laughs) Asia. And so it was like, um, you know, there was a kind of uh, a home for the community-driven process through those companies. And then Belvoir had the wherewithal Mm. to say what I was talking about earlier, to Mm. say this work should be done at a scale it should be done at. So Eamon made it bigger, like I was saying yeah. earlier, and so it was like, and they could go to um, the major festivals and say, you know, it should be done at this scale. I'm not saying that was easy. It was an epic, yeah, shocking, long process, yeah, that shit fight. But they, but I would have lost it on my own, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Whereas with Belvoir, we had a chance, and so the main stage part of the process was able to go. You no, know, we know how to put on large scale theatre, mm. and there is a process for it. And we think this story should be in that process. And it would have failed if it was either of those pathways alone. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, like what the small to medium sector was able to do in terms of its agility and ability to, to shepherd new work coupled with main stage saying, uh, utilising its privilege to say some stories deserve to be told on this scale. Um, and I think it had to bring together a coalition of those two parties. To pull it to off. To pull it off. Yeah. Yeah.
0: How, how long was the rehearsal? Process Five weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And what were some of the unique challenges in rehearsal with a work like this?
2: <laughs> Wait, where yeah, do you like, start? <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, we had to run two rooms throughout. Yeah. Yeah, so Am and I were always
1: running two rooms. Because and, of the scale or because of the cultural specificity? Uh, I think just because it was three and a half hours yeah. long. There were 16 actors and five weeks really wasn't long enough.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And... Uh, because we could have done the culture. if it was a shorter play with less actors, culture specificity would have been, yeah, okay. Um, but if and we don't look, but of course that was huge mm-hmm. as well, because most actors knew at least one of the languages they had to speak apart from English. but not the others, yeah. So they had to learn lines in some other language. Most did, a lot of them didn't know the right accents, and so we had to do a lot of accent training. Blah blah blah. The other interesting thing that happened was. Encouraging people not to be too nice. Yeah. <laughs> I think. Cause everyone was so keen for it to go well that it was rehearsals were like the the pace of the thing and the attack of the thing was a bit soft at first. It was a bit it was a bit too polite. And we really had to push through people's desire to be respectful mm. <laughs> and um into a kind of um, space where uh, the, the messiness of a
0: community is mm. is the only way to do this right. Mm. Yeah. And to not not let reverence for the project get in the way of yeah what's being played. Yeah. 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 Which needs to be a glorious mess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And the live music element is obviously something that interests you. Yep. Uh, you yeah. You know, w- w- what does what. Apart from the obvious things, what texture does that add to the work for you? Mm. I think it's really important culturally because we don't, um,
1: you know, if you can afford it, our weddings have live music. Mm. Uh, Our temple festivals have live music. We don't have a form of dance where people dance to pre-recorded music. It's not a thing. Mm. When you have your New Year celebrations or when you have children are born um, when women get their periods like you know there's there's kind of um uh uh, music and ritual is 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 consistently celebrated Mm -hmm. um and i'm not saying that hindu culture is amazing there's lots of problems with misogyny in class and all these kinds of things but live music is a part of everyday life and everyday celebration and ritual and you know it's too much to get into it here, but is actually intrinsically um linked to how we traditionally tell stories or move our bodies or you know understand the world. like a rhythm is based on the old rhythms are all based on how um a deer might move through a forest or how the ocean hits the sand, and so yeah um, and they, and they are supposed <clears throat> to be based on like times of day and types of environment, and so we, we wanted to make sure that we brought that in as much as possible to the way that narrative flowed in *Canyon and Cracking mm. and the way that music is used in a show would, would be less about supporting emotion and more about creating the world that particular scenes inhabit and how we propel ourselves through history and narrative. Mm. Like there's a kind of urgency to the music in that show that whirs into action the more the different time periods coalesce. Mm. In in a show where the set is essentially the stage and the seating bank, having three seated musicians is a statement in the Mm. set design.
0: Yeah, and and really contributed to the dramatic action. Yeah, absolutely. It kind of had dramatic function, not just sort of textural
1: kind of... That's right, that's right. And they kind of uh, oversaw the action but then joined it at certain points. And so in the wedding scene... All but one of them join the wedding scene mm. as well, and the and the, and the, the bit they join is this kind of
0: eighteen-person argument about the future of the country. Yeah. You know, so,
1: yeah.
0: I mean, it would have been you know thrilling and also terrifying and hard work to be in the room to kind of get it on, but you know, bef- before you get to that process, like what what's your relationship to writing? Are you one of these people who loves writing, or is it a tortured process for you? <laughs> um. I had to think about that mostly
1: post canyon cracking because it was yeah. my first play. And it's like the, I absolutely adore writing. I'm not one of those people who think that humans have arrived at a point of enlightenment and that reason will get us out of everything. <laughs> mm. Like I think that language has done as much to hurt us as it has done to help us. And that, So much of modern history has moved us away from a grounded understanding of our place in this world and has kind of divorced us from our very real connections to the natural world around us. And um, and so I love the idea of language as this imperfect tool trying to badly better itself. Mm. (laughs) And, um, you know, I love, that's what I love about writing. It's like you're picking up something that is so... Flawed and useless to begin with, and and then it it has this amazing ability to uh, limp its way across the finishing line. Yeah, <laughs> and I find that a really satisfying, fulfilling, mm. creative task. Mm. Um, and then theatre is interesting because writing for theatre is like this. Um,
0: the, the, the gaps between dialogue create form. I find endlessly fascinating. Mm. You know, and I and I find that form is not something we talk enough about in Australian playwriting. No, you no, know, we really don't. We yeah, and we don't push it much. I think. Mm, yeah, yeah, we don't create space to to be formally inventive or or you know, um, and this kind of leads on to the next thing I want to ask you, which is. In in recent years, you know, we've seen such a shift in Australian playwriting. We've seen or we're seeing a shift towards conversations around what kind of work are we making. I'm a little bit allergic to the word diversity. I'm sort of more, you know, into storytelling that is just reflective of reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and even Me this too. podcast, you know, staging the nation, we're grappling with what it, you know, what it means to to tell stories from different perspectives. I guess the really big question I want to ask you, which is so loaded, is <laughs> how do we do it, Shakti? How in this phase of time that we're in and having done something so how, how do we in from your experience and perspective tell and and show these underrepresented voices in a way that is that honors not just the content but the structures in which mm. we're pursuing this process mm. can you just solve australian theater for me Thanks, yeah man.
2: sure yeah <laughs> so.
1: i think for writers the lesson i've learned is that we have so much power in being able to talk about projects that are unmistakably connected to the lived experience we have and how we therefore view the world and can write about the world. And I don't mean that to be necessarily personal stories, Mm -hmm. but I mean to say that if we're courageous enough to not self-censor ourselves but also (laughs) kind of confront what scares us a lot Mm -hmm. about all the things we've lost with all of our assimilationarily impulses, if we can meet all that and then, which I which I don't mean to gloss over, it's very hard and very vulnerable mm-hmm. to be in that space. But if we can do that, there's so much power that comes from that. It's really hard to knock projects back that come from that place. And it's much harder to knock back ambition that comes from that place because it is unmistakably part of what that voice needs Mm. to happen to tell that story and actually people are really excited about that. I think with the industry there's a real culture of like when all the ingredients are in place we'll do this and that's self-defeating because the ingredients will never be in place Mm. (laughs) like you're never going to have who you think the perfect caster or the perfect director are the perfect script is and you know, your audience development is timing right. And it's like, you've just got to, I think we have to switch from that perspective to perspective in which we're like, this clearly has excellent promise. Mm. This clearly could be something incredible. So over the next five years, what do we have to do to make sure that it achieves its potential? What do we have to change about ourselves? Mm. Who are the people we have to bring on board to partner on this? Um, could that director in five years be the right person? Is it about them being matched with someone who's really experienced to mentor them and co-direct or whatever it is? And it's like, I think we need to pick things and back them rather than endlessly wait for it to, to, to be perfectly right mm. to be backed. The, the real scary thing is to not do so is going to result in a shrunken theatre industry and a heavily segregated one from the rest of the world because you look at the streamers right now and some of the biggest titles now on the streamers are from non-Western countries Yes. in terms of global ratings. Yeah. And in terms of where Australia is going to be 10, 20 years from now, the kinds of population mix we will have that's consuming culture, it is a far cry from your average, especially main stage, theatre audience. So um, do we want them to become smaller and separate to how the rest of Australia consumes culture Mm. (laughs) or do we want our theatre industry um, to be part of um, the way in which all Australians understand themselves through their art? Mm. And at the moment, they're going to miss out. They're going to become a rarefied thing that only a few people take part in. And so, yeah, we've got to back certain projects and, and shepherd them over the long term in, in big coalitions.
2: Mm.
0: And, to, and to my earlier point with form, you know, we're, we're seeing that as well in the streaming services, in other storytelling. Yeah. You know, this understanding that the idea of how a story should arrive is also shifting yeah, depending really on is. what story you're telling. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, no, that's not happening in theatre. Yeah. <laughs>
2: it's not happening in
0: theater and you know and and that's also because there's a sort of I, I observe an inherited idea of what is dramaturgy and what is what makes a good play which is such a problematic idea in itself yeah i no, don't we don't need that question yeah yeah we don't need that question yeah <laughs> no and your point about it being mm. not not messy but active all the time i think is such an important one mm. you know mm. one of the things that's come up in this series is we have such a culture of first production only. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, we really do. You know, and the pressure Mm. to get that first one right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we
1: really do. And then we kind of leave the people in the lurch after that,
0: Mm. you know. But
1: I think form's fascinating because it's kind of like we forget about how powerful story is in terms of like the places we can take audiences. Like it took me a while to figure it out, but candy cracking is essentially a mixture of the things I'm most familiar with in the end, which is, community arts and Hindu epic. (laughs) And it's like the, if you were to pitch that, people would be like, no. But if you were to say, well, you know, we find out that a father that we thought dead is alive and we uncover a mother's secrets in order for that family to find out whether it can reunite or not. Like if you, if that happens early enough in the show, you can fucking do anything. Mm. While audience are waiting to find out if that family will reunite. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we don't take that boldness yeah. enough, you know? And like, yeah. So I think we can rely on the power of a plot position powerfully enough early and on, on in a play to to really pull us into extraordinary
0: places as that, that thing develops in terms of form. Yeah. We let it. Yeah, which, which, which it does so beautifully. As we kind of start to wrap up, I want to ask you, Another big question. Oh, my Lord. Um, what, w- you know, it, it, it could be a couple of things, but what did you learn about yourself making this work?
1: The season of Canyon Cracking, particularly the Sydney one, because there's such a big Sri Lankan community here. So it's three weeks. And then I've never been that vulnerable for that long. Mm. <laughs> like every single day, basically 24 hours a day, except when I was sleeping. I was having to be vulnerable, whether it be like the fixes the show needed or talking to people about it, talking to the media. And then that continued long after that because of the success it had. And it changed me in my DNA in the sense of, I think I went from someone who both personally waged my most dearly held thoughts in private Mm. (laughs) and also culturally waged the inaction of who I really was in private, and kind of wore a mask publicly, both whether it be my emotional state or uh, multifaceted identity—you know—in terms of different um, heritages, and 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 I was very comfortable with that. <laughs> it's very comfortable with. Uh, Um, A private version of myself and a public version of myself. And counting and cracking obliterated that. Mm. And I think it's really forced me to contend with what it means to be, I mean, fuck, first of all, find out who you are if you're being honest with yourself. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, Not a small thing. And then to not put makeup on that when you're in public. Mm. Uh, It taught me that I think my favourite kind of art comes from that place, which is a real tragedy, Cause it's hard to be vulnerable. (laughs) 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 And then, so since then I've been like, wow, like how does one stay okay? Mm. If that's where you want to be. And Um, so big question. Yeah. But I've, and so I'm not finished on that process. Mm. And it's also coupled with all sorts of other interesting things. Like, you know, I've just kind of gone as soon as like, I remember on the first day rehearsals, Amy was like, you'll probably never see this many people in a rehearsal room again. <laughs> and kind of just going, when it won lots of awards, I was like, well, I remember Sue, I was like, Sue at the helm. And she was like, this will never happen again. Yeah. And um, good old Belvoir realists. And yeah, um, yeah. they're just kind of going, okay, like that's probably the peak of my career. Yeah. And so just kind of going like, how do I stay in that place of art making? And how do I also no longer turn up for work anymore? to pull off some ambitious thing and mm. you know, it has to be a completely different reason now why I'm turning up every day and it has to do with something about how you believe in the art making process and how you believe in the power of vulnerability um so yeah I feel like it's fundamentally changed me mm. I hold on to that you know because the years following candy cracking have been dismal
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the pandemic <laughs> you know we've had a yeah.
1: pandemic and so many cuts and to funding and it's just like, sometimes it feels like we put on an impossible show with Cannon Cracking mm. and like, and then sometimes it feels like it will never be possible again. Um, but it was, it was good that it went well because it feels, it, there's, there's hope in that, right? Mm. To, 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 to be vulnerable, mm. to commit to a public performance of yourself and your community and a type of art making that is not different to who you are privately and for that to not go horribly is an incredibly hopeful thing. <laughs> mm. And despite <laughs> and, its perceived impossibility,
2: it yeah. did happen. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So I think
0: every day in my work on how to stay in that frame of mind. Yeah. Well, on that beautiful note, it's been such a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you so much. Amazing questions. Thank you. You know, nice to have you on. Thank you. Pleasure. That's it for today's episode of Staging the Nation. If you want to hear more, make sure you subscribe. See you next time. Staging the Nation is a production of Riverside's National Theatre of Parramatta, produced and recorded at Riverside Theatres, Parramatta. Executive Producer, Joanne Key. Producer and Technical Director, Daniel Holsworth, Composition, Meili Hay. Associate Producer, Kara Woods host, Dino Demetriades. Thank you to the Australia Council's Resilience Fund and also City of Parramatta, Create New South Wales and Riverside Theatres. And of course, thank you to you all for listening.